like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I feel like we've already had a powerful message this morning. I uh, have been to the Dominican Republic, and if you are even slightly thinking about going on this mission trip, pay the price, make the sacrifice, and go. Uh, God will change your life in the process. And I also encourage you to support our young people. I call them young people as I can get older, who are willing to make the sacrifices to go to places like this. Let's get behind them and support them and encourage them in that process. Um, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, we live in a day when we have coined the phrase megachurch. And a lot of people are critical of the megachurch. Personally, I'm all for it. The first megachurch was located in Jerusalem in 33 A.D. On the first day, had 3,000 people. And then by chapter 4 and verse 4, it says they had 5,000 men. So if you figure most of those men were married and maybe had a couple kids, that's 20,000 people. And the book of Acts goes on to tell us that they continued to multiply. And God continued to add to their numbers. My criticism with many local churches today is not with their size. It's with their strategy for growth. It's with their leadership style. There are many pastors today who have minimized the importance of preaching the Word of God and have become essentially the CEO of the church. And rather than look to the Word of God for the requirements and responsibilities of church leadership, they import those from the business world around them. They are essentially church entrepreneurs. They view the church as a product to be marketed to the consumer. And the problem with that approach is that like a retail business, you have to give the consumer what they're looking for. So many churches adopt the motto of Burger King. Have it your way. You see, I would argue that the church is called to do the exact opposite of that. You see, the church has to give people not what they want, not what they're looking for, but what they need. I don't think most people know what they're looking for. Most people don't know what they're hungering for. They don't know what they're thirsting for. They need someone to lead them to the one that they are looking for, Jesus Christ. Before I was a believer, I didn't need someone to help me have it my way. I had it my way. And that was my problem. I needed someone to help me to have it God's way. See, I think we have a leadership crisis in American churches today. We have plenty of slick, creative, celebrity type, professional type, CEO type leaders, and not enough pastors who are faithfully preaching and humbly following God's truth. John Piper wrote a book entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. 
Let me just read a few snippets out of the first chapter. And I am jumping and paraphrasing as I read this. We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness. There is no professional tenderheartedness. There is no professional panting after God. Our business is to weep over our sins. Is there professional weeping? Our business is to take up the blood-splattered cross daily. How do you carry a cross professionally? We are to be filled not with wine, but with the Spirit. How can you be drunk with Jesus professionally? We were given the gospel treasure to carry in clay pots. Is there a way to be a professional clay pot? Brothers, we are not professionals. We are outcasts. We are aliens and exiles in the world. Our citizenship is in heaven and we wait with eager expectation for the Lord. You cannot professionalize the love for his appearing without killing it. And it is being killed. The aims of our ministry are eternal and spiritual. They are not shared by any of the professions. And then he shares his prayer in the preface. Oh, for radically Bible-saturated, God-centered, Christ-exalting, self-sacrificing, mission-mobilizing, soul-saving, culture-confronting pastors. Let the chips fall where they will. Palm branches one day. Persecution the next. Listen, if Scripture is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness, as it says it is in 2 Peter 1.3, and if Scripture equips God's people for every good work, as it says it does in 2 Timothy 3.17, don't you think that it has something to say about the important matter of church leadership? Since Jesus promised to build His church in Matthew 16:18, wouldn't you expect His Word to say something about what the leaders of His church should be and should be doing? Our passage this morning addresses that issue. Now, last time we looked at Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 17 and following from the standpoint of the duties of church members towards their leaders. This morning, we're going to reverse that. Now, this passage is not comprehensive, but it does give some vital principles about the responsibilities of church leaders. And I've narrowed that down to a checklist of four things that I've listed in your bulletin. Number one, responsibility is lead. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders. Church leaders are responsible to lead. Now, obviously, that sounds redundant. But I think it needs to be said. 
The New Testament does not make a distinction between clergy and laity. You don't have to come to the clergy to get access to God. You don't have to come to the clergy to confess your sins. If you're a believer, you have full access to God. You don't have to bring your offering to a priest. You are a priest. The Bible says every believer is a priest. And verse 15 of our chapter says we as priests are to be continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. But the New Testament does make a distinction between leaders and followers. And last time we talked about the fact that followers should follow. This morning I want to make the point that leaders should lead. Now, who are the leaders? Well, the New Testament uses different titles to refer to church leaders. They're called elders in passages like Acts 20:17, which refers to their spiritual maturity. At other times, they're called overseers, which is the word for bishops in passages like 1 Timothy 3.1, and that title refers to their function of watching over, of overseeing the church. They're also called pastors or shepherds, again underlining their responsibility of leading and feeding and protecting the flock. Peter uses all three of those terms in his passage in 1 Peter 5.1 and 2, where he says, I exhort the elders shepherd or pastor the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Now, the word translated leaders in Hebrews 13, 17 is a Greek word that means literally to lead the way. Elders to be, are to be out in the front leading the way. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, Paul adds another aspect of this when he says, Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. That word to have charge over means to stand before or to rule. Elders rule over you. That's why verse 17 says you are to obey them and submit to them. 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about the elders who rule well being worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That same word is used in 1 Timothy 3.4 of a father managing his household. So in the same way that a father is responsible to rule his household, to stand before his household, elders are responsible to rule the church, to stand before the church, to lead the church. So my first point is that leaders should lead. And leadership, listen, leadership is primarily influence. And so the way that church leaders influence others is twofold. Number one, by their godly example. Peter exhorts elders in 1 Peter 5.3 to prove to be examples to the flock. That's why most of the qualifications for that office in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 are godly character qualities. Because since elders are leading people to Christ-likeness, we must be displaying those Christ-like qualities in our lives. And then the other side of that is by teaching God's Word. The one exception to the character qualities in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that an elder has to be able to teach. 
Why? Because that's how we lead. You see, we lead by show and tell. By our example and by our teaching. Titus 1.9 puts it this way. He must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. So, leadership requires having a clear biblical picture of what the local church ought to be and ought to be doing and continually communicating that to the church by our example and by our teaching. And then if I was going to add a third thing, it would be that leadership also requires dealing with problems that arise in the church. Titus 1.9 in that passage about requirements adds this. An elder must be able to refute those who contradict. And again, that's the idea of a shepherd leading and feeding and protecting. This is the protecting aspect. President John F. Kennedy said, No easy problem ever comes to the President of the United States. If they are easy to solve, somebody else has already solved them. Well, that's true of the elders. We take on the problems that are hard to solve. And unfortunately, out of an attempt to please everyone, church leaders today often dodge the difficult problems. They refuse to confront an influential church member who's living in sin. They don't want to teach on doctrines that are not popular, even if they're biblical. They don't confront someone who's teaching error for fear that they might stir up conflict. They don't want to get involved in resolving relationships between church members or even family members. You see, I would suggest that to dodge such difficult matters is to fail to lead the church. And the first responsibility of church leaders is to stand out front and lead. Second, is to live. Since we primarily lead by example, we need to be a little further down the road than everyone else. So the fundamental aspect to leading for Christ is living for Christ. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul exhorts his young co-worker by saying, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. In Acts 20.28, Paul told the Ephesian elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. You see, a leader's life is the foundation for his leadership. And let me just, in this passage, this is a limited list, but let me just pick out five things I see in this passage that are aspects of the personal life of a leader. Number one, leaders maintain a good conscience. Look at verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. Paul told Felix in Acts 24:16, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Now Paul can't say I always have a blameless conscience, but he can say I do my best to maintain one. Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us that the conscience is that inner sense of right and wrong that God has put into every human heart. 
Now, your conscience is not invincible. The Bible says that it can be seared, calloused, hardened. It can be defiled. It's not invincible. It's also not infallible. Your conscience can be wrong. And so your conscience has to be informed by the principles of the Word of God. I remember my dad telling me that when he grew up in his home, it was a sin to do certain things. They just didn't give them options. They just say, on Sunday you don't, you know, you don't ride your bike, you don't play, you don't do these things. And there were all these rules in the household. I know people, in fact, I grew up, I didn't go to a movie theater until I was 12. My mom, it wasn't like it was, it was said to be wrong, but she said, well, when you get to be 12, you can decide. And I know people that grew up in houses like that. You, it, was, it was wrong to go to a movie theater. So your conscience basically kicks in and says going to a movie theater is wrong. About the time I was 12, they came out with the Billy Graham movies. So what did we do? We went to the movie theater to see the Billy Graham movies. And you walk in the movie theater and your conscience is going, this is wrong. You're not supposed to be in a movie theater. And yet you're going there to do something that's right. So you have to inform your conscience. See, a Jewish person got saved. That Jewish person lived their whole life saying, well, I've got to observe the Sabbath. I can't eat a ham sandwich. Now they're a believer, they pick up a ham sandwich, and their conscience goes, this is bad. What do I have to do? I have to reprogram my conscience. And that's very important. Because Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that even when our conscience is misinformed, it's a sin to violate it. So it's essential that we have and maintain a good conscience. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Second aspect of the personal life of a leader is that a leader must have a passion for honorable conduct. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Conduct that honors God in all things is not a nice option. It's something that a leader should be desiring. That's why he said back in verse 7 of this same chapter, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of what? Their conduct, imitate their faith. A leader should be living a life of faith and conduct that others can emulate. See, a leader can't have the bumper sticker that says, don't follow me, I'm lost too. A leader has to have the bumper sticker that Paul had on his car. He gives it to us in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. A leader should be able to say, follow my conduct, because I'm not just a leader, I'm a follower also of Jesus Christ. And then the third aspect of a leader's life, leaders have a sense of accountability. Look at the middle of verse 17. 
It says, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. As a leader, I am cognizant of the fact that I will one day stand before God and give an account not just for my life, but for the life of every member of this church. Now, if you're a husband and father, you are the head of your household. You will one day stand and give an account before God of yourself and your family. As an elder, we will give an account for all of those that are part of the flock that we're responsible for in this church. You see, church leaders don't have final authority over the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4 tells us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. We're just under shepherds. We're just assistant shepherds to Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. And one of my great pet peeves is pastors who talk about my church. It's not my church. It's His church. Church leaders are not owners. We are just stewards. We are just managers of His church that He bought with His blood. And one day we will give an account of how well we did. And there is a great rebuke awaiting those church leaders who abuse their authority. One of the most chilling passages for a pastor to read is Ezekiel 34, where God says, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. Wow. There's a great rebuke awaiting those who abuse authority. But on the flip side of that, there's a great reward awaiting those who have faithfully carried out their responsibility. In 1 Peter 5.4, there's a special promise to elders who shepherd the flock of God. It says, when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A godly leader lives his life with his eyes focused on the chief shepherd, realizing that he is accountable to him. And then the fourth aspect of a leader's personal life is that leaders are people of faith and prayer. In verse 7, he says, remember those who led you and imitate their faith. And in verse 18, he says, pray for us. And then in verses 20 and 21, he prays for them. See, this is where American business principles don't apply to the local church. Because the local church can't be run like a business where we make plans and we implement plans based on human wisdom. We have to make plans based on what we can't accomplish, but what God says He will do 
And we have to carry out those plans God's way with total dependence upon God. A lot of leaders today are in the King Saul school of leadership. We heard about it earlier. King Saul looked like a king. He was taller than everybody else. He acted like a king. But he wasn't a leader. Because he wasn't a man of faith and prayer and dependence on God. I told you last time that I'm in over my head. The elders are in over our heads. The staff is in over our heads. Our purpose statement is to present everyone complete in Christ. We are totally insufficient to accomplish that. We have to be totally dependent upon God to accomplish our goal. That's why I told you last time in the words of verse 18, pray for us. That's why we spend a significant portion of our elders' meetings praying. That's why our paid staff and our volunteer staff get together the first thing every Monday morning to pray. That's why our pastoral staff gets together every Wednesday morning to pray. That's why we're planning, I haven't even told all the staff, we're planning a day of prayer for the staff, the, the pastoral staff just to get together and we're going to pray for a day for ourselves and for the body here. You see, leaders are people of faith and prayer. And then the fifth aspect. Leaders are willing to suffer for Christ. Look at verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Timothy has just been released from what? From prison. Paul had exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And apparently, Timothy heeded that admonition and he got himself arrested. You see, when the persecution comes, it usually starts with the leaders. The main target of the enemy is going to be the leaders. And even if we don't suffer persecution from without, leaders have to be ready to suffer criticism and personal attacks from within. Whenever you make a decision, it's always open to criticism. Charles Spurgeon's autobiography contains an entire chapter on the early criticisms and slanders that were labeled against him mostly by other pastors. And then in the latter part of his life, he went through many other unfair attacks because he stood against the growing liberalism in his denomination. Second Corinthians is a book written because the Apostle Paul was being criticized by the very church he planted. The very people he led to the Lord were criticizing him, so he has to write a book, 2 Corinthians, defending himself before these people. And I would suggest that leaders who hold firmly to biblical truth 
will always face such attacks. Because no matter how kindly you say it, God's truth always offends somebody. Charles Spurgeon's wife helped him deal with the attacks by putting Matthew 5, 11, and 12 on a plaque that he read every morning. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Third on our checklist is lean. On my cell phone, I have different ringtones. So when my phone rings, I know who's calling me. Tempa's ringtone is... uh, Let me wet my lip for this. Even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. Lindsay's ringtone is my girl. Whenever the office calls me, or one of the staff guys calls me, or one of the elders calls me, the ringtone is, lean on me. When you're not strong, I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. All right, I've lost it. That's what I mean by lean here. Leaders have to lean on each other. See, it's no coincidence in verse 17 that leaders is plural. In the New Testament, church leaders are always plural. And there are several benefits to that. Number one, it's a safeguard against the abuse of authority. Number two, the task of shepherding a local church is far too great for one person. And number three, it provides built-in support. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There is strength in numbers. And because leaders are plural, we have to work together. We see in this passage, the writer is working together with the leaders of this church. We see him working together with Timothy in verse 23 and planning to travel with Timothy. The leaders in verse 17 have to work together to watch over the flock. This requires teamwork. The only example of one dominant leader in the New Testament is in 3 John 9 and 10, where the Apostle John confronts a guy by the name of Diotrephes because he loved to be first among them and he took it on himself to put people out of the church. The only example of one solo leader in the New Testament is a negative example. Now let me add this. By virtue of spiritual gifts and calling, there are examples of leaders who were first among equals. There are examples of plural leadership where there was a leader of the leaders. Peter was that among the disciples. He was obviously the guy up front. 
He wasn't always leading the direction he should be, but he was out front. In the book of Acts, it's clear that James was the leader among the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. In fact, in Galatians 2.9, Paul calls him a pillar in that church. Acts 14.12 indicates that on their missionary journey, Paul was the leader, even though Barnabas had been a believer for a longer period of time. So sometimes when you have a group of leaders, by giftedness and calling, you have a leader of leaders. But they always have to work together with each other. They always have to submit to each other, as Ephesians 5.21 says. And they also need to lean on each other. That's what leaders do. And then the fourth on the checklist is look. Verse 17 says they keep watch over your souls. The Greek word translated keep watch literally means to chase sleep. It's the idea of chasing sleep away so that you can stay alert. It's taken from the analogy of a shepherd keeping watch over their flocks. It's the idea of staying awake, of being alert, of being on guard. Shepherds had to stay alert in order to guard their flocks from predators. When David was a shepherd, we're told that he killed a lion on one occasion. He killed a bear on another occasion. He did that by being alert to watch over his flock. A shepherd had to know the sheep and observe them carefully enough to recognize when a sheep was sick or when a sheep was missing. They had to go after the strays and try to find them. And bring them back to the flock. They had to lead the sheep to pasture that was good pasture. They had to lead them to water that was good water. That's what church leaders are to be doing for the flock. And obviously that requires the discernment to know where people are at spiritually. To recognize when people are heading towards spiritual danger. It requires the wisdom to know what's best for your soul. And not just your body. It requires the concern and courage to confront you when you're drifting. It requires the compassion to put you on our back when you're hurting and when you're injured. Keeping watch over your souls is an overwhelming task. And I don't want you to look at this passage and say, all right, we got problems here. The elders need to take care of it. Because this is such an overwhelming task that it doesn't just fall on the elders. It falls on every member of the church. And that's why in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul says that everyone who is spiritual is responsible to help restore those who are caught in any trespass and to bear one another's burdens. We're all to take this responsibility. But here it clearly tells us that the elders are going to give an account for watching over the flock. How do we do that? Well, again, I can make a long list. But let me just stay in this passage. I see three things in this passage that we would put on that list. Number one is by faithfully teaching God's Word. 
We saw it in verse 7. Remember those who led you who spoke the Word of God to you. Leading and speaking the Word of God go hand in hand. In verse 22, he mentions his own brief word of exhortation, which is the book of Hebrews. And while all elders are to be able to teach some, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, work hard at preaching and teaching. And believe me, it's hard work. To faithfully preach and teach God's Word is hard work, but it's essential to the spiritual health of God's people. And so, for leaders who are watching over the flock, it's a priority. That's why almost the last thing that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 was, preach the Word. Second, is by helping develop harmonious relationships. In verse 17, the writer is concerned that they work in harmony with their leaders so that they may lead them with joy and not with grief. He asks for prayer in verses 18 and 19 so that he can be restored to them sooner so that they can enjoy that relationship. He mentions Timothy in verse 23 and how he wants to travel with him to visit them. In verse 24, he asks them to greet all the leaders and greet all the saints. See, this passage just oozes with relationships. Jesus said that the whole Bible is summed up by the two great commandments. And both have to do with relationships. Love God and love others. So a healthy church has to have healthy relationships. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Judea and I urge Sintichi to live in harmony in the Lord. Now you say, well, why is Paul going along writing Scripture and he pauses to tell these two ladies to just get along? Because relationships matter. Now, I think about those ladies. I mean, in the New Testament, most of the congregation didn't read, so they would, and they didn't have a Bible, so the, the letter would arrive and they'd stand in front of the church and read it. So they're reading the letter of the church, and all of a sudden, Paul's saying, Sally and Sue, you two get along. I wouldn't want my name in the Bible for that one reason. First issue that Paul deals with in his letter to the church at Corinth was the quarrels that he had heard about that were going on in that church. There were plenty of problems there, but the first one he deals with is divisions, quarrels, because relationships matter. Now, when I think about it, you take several hundred people from different backgrounds and different ages and different races, and then you throw in different personalities and different preferences and, and the fact that we're all from Adam and we've got our own selfish nature. And it's a miracle to me that a church ever survives. And if you're here and you haven't been offended yet, just stick around. Leaders are to be examples of what harmonious relationships should be. And we are to be helping you develop harmonious relationships 
as well. That's one of the reasons why we stress small groups so much, because you come together in a small group and you build meaningful relationships there. Great context for that to happen. You know, it's interesting to me that when Jesus defined eternal life, this, was, this is what he said in John seventeen three. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's interesting. We usually think of eternal life as quantity of life. It's, it's forever life. Jesus says it's quality of life. And the way we experience that quality of life is through relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So the way that you and I share that life together is in relationship with each other. We share our relationship with God with each other. And those healthy relationships are all part of our spiritual growth in the body of Christ. And then the third way we watch over your souls is by emphasizing God's grace. Look at how he ends this letter. He says, grace be with you all. Now, that's a salutation, but it's more than a mere formality because it's really the conclusion of what he's been saying throughout this book. In chapter 2 and verse 9, he mentioned that Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. In chapter 4 and verse 16, he encouraged us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. In 10.29, he warned against insulting the spirit of grace. In chapter 12 and verse 15, he warned against coming short of God's grace. In chapter 13 and verse 9, he cautioned against legalism, saying, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So many churches today are marked by legalism. But leaders are responsible to create an atmosphere of grace. So church leaders are to lead, live, lean, and look out for you. We are praying about adding some new elders, and so I would tell you that the balloting is still open. There are elder poll sheets at the Welcome Center out there. If as we've gone through this, you see someone who has this shepherd's heart in our congregation who is doing these very things already. I would encourage you to write their name down on one of those sheets. Or if you can't get a sheet, just write it on uh, a sheet of paper, a napkin, a tissue, whatever. Drop it in the uh, offering boxes. Let us know who you see that God has set apart as a leader in this body. And then before all the elders resign and run for their lives, and no one volunteer to take the office of elder after this message, let me just conclude by reminding you of Paul's words about the ministry. After asking this question in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, who is adequate for these things? He gives us the answer in chapter 3. 
He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. The responsibility of church leadership is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's why on behalf of the leaders of this church, we join the writer of Hebrews in asking you in the words of verse 18, pray for us. Let's close.